You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good to be back up here with you. Uh, We're going to continue in 1 Corinthians today. Let's pray as we go to God's Word this morning. God, you declare that you have created us in your image, male and female. And God, today as we look at your word, I pray that we would see in a fresh way the goodness and glory of your design and that we'd embody it in our life together. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive what you have to teach us. And Lord, I pray especially this morning, just grant me words to speak words that would be helpful to your people, pleasing to you, Jesus. I ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. Years ago, after a service, a woman approached me, and she slipped me some cash. And she said, hey, Jeff, why don't you buy yourself a new pair of shoes? (laughs) And, And I said, thank you. That is so nice. And then I thought, Why does she think I need a new pair of shoes? And apparently, she thought my shoes looked a little ratty. In fact, she'd been staring at them for the entire service. Was I offended? Not really, because I like free stuff. Um, But it was enlightening. Clothing matters. There's a reason people call it a fashion statement don't they? Uh, And it really matters if people are focused on you, especially if they're focused on you in the context of worshiping God. Imagine if I got up here, rolled out of bed, and just preached in my pajamas. Imagine if I got up here in a tuxedo and preached. Imagine if I got up here in a wig with makeup and a long flowing gown. Now, regardless of how I dress, in any of those instances, who would you be focused on? Me. Who would you not be focused on? God and what he has to say. Uh, That helps us get a sense of Paul's concern today because apparently the Corinthians were making some pretty provocative fashion statements And they were doing it in the context of corporate worship. Much of this seems strange, much of this seems foreign, and yet the principles Paul lays out here speak to some of the most controversial issues of our day. What is a man? What is a woman? How do we image God together? And I think the challenge today is to not get too bogged down with the particulars and the unknowns, but to look at the knowns and the principle Paul's going to lay out because it remains extremely relevant for today. Today, uh, we get to the most perplexing passage in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you've got a Bible, open it. I don't always tell you to do that. If you've got a physical Bible, great. Or just open it because you're going to need to be in this text a lot today. I can think of no other way to help you understand how perplexing this passage is than just to read it all the way through. And so I will start there. 1 Corinthians 11, 
verse 2. Paul says this. Now I commend you, Corinthians, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, at Creekside, we try to preach through books of the Bible. And one reason for that is this. It forces us as pastors to talk about passages like this. Because at first glance, let's be honest, this feels weird. It feels weird, doesn't it? It's a challenging text. In his commentary, Andrew Wilson gives five reasons why this is challenging. I'm going to give a sixth. Six reasons this is a particularly hard text to grapple with. First, we feel cultural distance from the text, don't we? What's a head covering? What does the head covering signify? Is it submission to authority? Does it differentiate a man from a woman? Does it indicate a woman's marital status? Scholars keep writing and opinions keep increasing on what these things are and what they mean. So, whatever this is talking about, we feel distant from it. Second reason is we don't know exactly why Paul is concerned about head coverings. Why were the Corinthians making head coverings an issue? Why does Paul think it's worth addressing? It's not entirely clear. Here's a third reason it's complicated. There is a complicated wordplay within the text itself. Did you notice that? Paul talks about the literal heads of men and women, and then he talks about this idea of headship in a figurative sense, and clearly the wordplay is intentional. There's some relationship between headship, between God, Christ, man, and woman, and the way we adorn our physical heads. So what does the metaphor mean? How does it relate to literal heads? Nobody agrees. Okay. Fourth, there are some real theological curveballs in this text, aren't there? What does it mean that God is the head of Christ? Why would Paul call man the image of God, but woman is the glory of man when both of them are created in the image of God? What's the point? Why should a woman have authority on or over her head or a symbol of authority because of the angels. I mean, Paul, this is complicated enough, and now you bring in the angels. Like, what, what are you doing here? Fifth, there's ambiguity in the words themselves. Uh, the term man can also be translated husband. 
It's the same word in Greek. The term woman can be translated wife. Again, the same word in Greek. So is Paul talking about husbands and wives specifically? Is he talking about men and women generically? It's not always clear. Uh, And then sixth, and let's just put the icing on the problematic cake here. This isn't just a confusing passage. It's a confusing passage about gender. Apparently, some Corinthians wanted to be contentious about gender, as Paul says in verse 16. And that's another way Corinthian culture is just different than ours, right? I mean, apparently they had disagreements about gender. Can you believe that? Uh, Thankfully, we've progressed in 2,000 years and we've got this all figured out in our enlightened society. Everybody just agrees on what gender is and how it works. Now, Uh, we are just as divided and contentious about gender as ever. In fact, that's just the last hundred years of history in the West. And initially, it was a debate about gender roles and what men and women do. And, And then somewhere in my lifetime, the battlefield shifted from what men and women do to what men and women are. And from gender roles to this issue of gender identity. And so people stopped talking about roles. And now the question is just, what is a man? What is a woman? And the question is so contentious that people don't even want to talk about it publicly. So, all of that uh, is the challenge that we face today as we look in this text. Uh, There's a great line from uh, the old Christopher Guest movie, This is Spinal Tap, back in the 80s, a movie about a fake rock band. But you might remember their great hit, Stonehenge. And Nigel Tufton gets up to talk about Stonehenge before the song, and he talks about the Druids. And he says, no one knows who they were. No one knows what they were doing. But their legacy lives on. That's That's how I feel about 1 Corinthians 11. We don't know exactly what's going on. We don't know exactly what they were doing. But the legacy of the text lives on because we keep debating about it endlessly. Provokes no shortage of heat, not a lot of light. So that begs the question for us. We're moving through a passage of Scripture. Why talk about it if it's that confusing and and, and controversial? Um, Three reasons why we're not just skipping ahead, okay? Okay. First, because all Scripture is profitable to us. All Scripture. Which means there is great profit in wrestling with a controversial text. In fact, if you're not provoked by Scripture occasionally and not bothered and forced to wrestle, you're not growing. You need to grapple with the confusing hard parts. That's just the bleeding edge of your growth in Christ. This is profitable for us. Second reason that this is important is because whatever Paul is saying in terms of cultural particulars, he's trying to lay down a vision of maleness and femaleness. And it's grounded in creation. And it's grounded in creation and it's something that should be embodied among all churches. Because you'll notice in verse 16, he doesn't just say, Corinthians, this is a you church thing. This is all the churches have a practice that reflects God's design and creation. So while there are cultural particulars, but then there are transcultural principles. Third, this is the most important reason of all. This is a passage about the glory of God in the gathered church. How do we glorify God when we get together? Remember, at the end of chapter 10, Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, glorify God. 
That's the goal of life, to bring God honor, to display his character. And now in chapters 11 through 14, Paul will teach the Corinthians, how do we glorify God in the context of gathered worship? When the church gets together, how do we showcase the beauty and splendor of God? How do we bring honor to his name? That's not a matter of indifference for us, is it? We want to display God accurately. And the Corinthians actually cared about this. Look at verse 2. Paul actually commends the Corinthians because they remember him and maintain the traditions that he had delivered to them. Right before this, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then he gives them an encouragement. He says, I commend you. You remember my example and Actually, you want to maintain the teaching I gave you. Paul had passed on teaching to them. And unless we think the Corinthians were just screw-ups, right? They were a mess. They were a sincere mess, okay? They, they did have a desire to imitate Paul, to follow his teaching. Even though they were screwing up in a lot of ways, they were zealous about worship. They got together. They gathered. Paul had instructed them on the importance of gathered worship. Paul says, that's great. You want to get together for worship. The problem is the way you're doing worship has some problems. And that's chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, is all the disorder in the Corinthians' worship that was what? Distracting from the glory of God. So Paul deals with distraction, with division, with disorder in order to bring God glory in Worship, and now beginning in chapter 11, he talks about how men and women can relate appropriately in public worship. And Paul is going to lay down some principles for how we understand maleness and femaleness that, that are so critical for us to get straight. Why would God set things up this way? Why would he create us male and female? In our culture, some people want to start with biology for understanding gender. Some people want to start with sociology. Some people want to start with psychology. Some people go to critical theory and just kind of deconstructing any stable notion of gender whatsoever. As Christians, we believe there's a creator. And so our starting point isn't biology or sociology or psychology. It's theology. Why would God set things up this way? And here's something that's so important for us to see today. When we think about God as creator... Sometimes I think we tend to see God as an engineer, right? He, he's designing a machine with different cogs and parts, and we have to work according to this design. And if we start there with our understanding of men and women, what are we going to look for in the Bible? We're going to look for roles and rules, right, as the starting point. Got to find lots of roles and rules. And, and okay, God, where's my instruction manual in the Bible for being a man? You know, like how long is my beard? How do I grill my meat? How do I kill my animals, right? Like how do I fix a car? And, and you look for that thing. And, and if you're looking for the instruction manual, you're going to be disappointed. Because the Bible doesn't give nearly as many hard and fast. It gives some, but not a lot of hard and fast rules for here's what men do, here's what women do. And so I want to change our frame of reference from God as an engineer to, to think of God as an artist. And he's painting a picture of his glory in creation. And each of us as male and female symbolically reflect something of the beauty of God. And that's God's authorial intent in creation. How do we image that grandeur and that beauty? 
See, that's a different starting point, isn't it? Because then we start not with the roles and the rules, but with the symbolism of what male and female mean. Does that make sense? So, so that's where we're going to go today. How do we glorify God in public worship? Paul says this, through symbols of marital fidelity, he talks about husbands and wives, through symbols of sexual difference, male and female are different. That's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. Things should be celebrated in our cultural expressions. And finally, through a sense of interdependence. We actually need each other. See, in our culture, one thing we struggle with is that things can be different yet equal. Equal does not mean identical. You can have things that are equal in value, importance, significance, but be different. And that's God's beautiful design for men and women. And the more we appreciate that, the more we appreciate each other. So there isn't a battle of the sexes. It's actually we're indispensable to each other. Does that make sense? That's where we're going. Okay, so first, symbols of fidelity in marriage. Now, to figure out this passage, you got to make some guess at two questions, okay? What is a head covering? Why, does it, why is it significant? Okay, I'm going to give you my best case here, okay? And I think it all has to do, first and foremost, with the way that men and women honor each other in the context of marriage. So what is a head covering? Go back to verses 4 and 5. Paul talks about men who prophesy, who speak publicly in the church with their head covered or down. They dishonor their head. Conversely, a wife or woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So, What's a covering? Two options. Paul can be talking about a hat. Okay, so some external covering. And if that's the case, it would have been important for a woman to wear it as a symbol of something. And it would be important for a man not to wear it. It wouldn't have been a manly thing to do. It wouldn't have been a womanly thing to do. It's a, it's a differentiation. So it's some kind of external covering. And then Paul's primarily concerned about the hat or Paul's primarily concerned about hair and how it's worn. Those are the two options, okay? Uh, he talks about hair in this passage. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, he literally says every man who prays or prophesies down from his head. Now, what is that? Is that a veil or is it hair? Could be either. He goes on to talk about hair in this passage and talks about a woman's head being shaven or shorn in cultural associations. Later, he talks about a man's long hair and a woman's short hair and what they symbolize. Okay, I spent three weeks studying the thing to death. I'm 55% on the side of hair, okay? That's where I'm at after this. I think in the Greco-Roman background, hair is what connoted things, right? Every culture has symbols that communicate different things. And so for a man, having head down from the hair, especially when worn in a more womanly way, connoted effeminacy, a rejection of manhood or homosexual practice and a rejection of the covenant of marriage. For a woman, long hair was a glory, but there were expectations about how a woman would wear her hair. And a woman wearing hair in a dignified way, she would cover her hair, which means wearing it up, wearing it in some kind of wrap or style, Hair was, had sexual connotations, so hair up for a woman meant she was chaste, modest, and what committed to her husband. Hair down or loose or unkempt meant what? Promiscuity. It meant sexual availability. Uh, it meant that the woman was open to a sexual relationship, which would dishonor who? God and her husband. 
Okay? That's my best guess at what's going on here. Neither view is without problems. Okay? But I think that makes the most sense out of what's going on in the culture. And, and so when Paul says it would be as if a woman's hair were shaven or shorn, temple prostitutes had their hair shaven or shorn. Um, or a woman who had been convicted of adultery would shave her head. And so it was a sign of sexual immorality. And so Paul says, you know that's over the line. So wearing your hair in an unkempt, loose way should be over the line as well. Okay? Now, regardless of what's happening there, the point is this, that there is a cultural way of wearing something on your head that either honors the marriage covenant or dishonors the marriage covenant. Does that make sense? Now, for some reason, the Corinthians felt they didn't have to abide by these cultural standards, probably because they don't think they have to abide by anything, right? We've seen that throughout Corinthians, that we're free in Christ, everything's lawful, so let's just strip off any norms related to sex or gender or anything, and let's just do worship however we want. That's probably what's going on. And Paul says, pause, whoa, 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 think about this. Now, there are women speaking in public in church, there are men speaking in public. What does it mean to prophesy? Just, I don't want to answer too many questions. We'll get to that, chapter 14, okay? There's public speaking going on here, and now in the context of corporate worship, Women are, through the way they're dressing, dishonoring their marital covenant. Men are dishonoring their marital covenant. And Paul says, you aren't honoring the design God has built into how men and women are supposed to exist in this union. Does that make sense? And that gets to why this is significant, is God cares about getting glorified through the order he has put into creation, male, female, one flesh. That's why this is significant. That's why he starts this way, verse 3. He talks about the head of every man being Christ, the head of the wife being her husband, the head of Christ being God. So I care about what you do with your literal heads because of this metaphor of headship. Now what does it mean that God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman? Tons of controversy about this. Tons of controversy because... On the one hand, some people really want to argue for hierarchy or authority and say head has to mean authority. And so he's talking about authority and the husband being an authority. Other people say, no, 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 the husband doesn't have any authority. Head means source, means the source of something, right? So you can think a head is like a head honcho, right, the boss, or head like the head of a river, right, the source from which something comes. Here's the reality. Both meanings of headship occur in the ancient world. Both of those connotations are there. What's Paul talking about? I think neither of those gets at technically what Paul is talking about here. It can have connotations of both, and I think there are connotations of both in the word, but the word itself means something like representative, preeminent, prominent, or one who stands for others. The, the father is the one who represents the members of the Trinity, the one to whom the glory is due. Christ is the representative of humanity. Colossians 1, he's the firstborn of creation. He represents us before God. Man has a unique representative role. There's connotations of authority. They go with it. But it's a role of representing the image of God in humanity. And I think that helps to explain the honor Paul is talking about that goes with that role, that there is a unique representational role for men, and that men sums up, represents in this age humanity in a way woman does not, which is why he goes on to say this, next 
Next controversial thing, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. What is Paul talking about there? What does that mean? Well, we know from Genesis 1 that God creates men and women in the image of God. So whatever Paul is saying here, you can't be talking about the dignity, value, status of men and women. Does that make sense? So what is he talking about? I think he's talking about a unique representational role that God gave to man. God appoints Adam to bear his image, and in a sense, Adam stands for what? Humanity. For his family. That's why we sin in who? Adam. Who's the final Adam? Jesus. He sums up humanity. So there's a unique representative role, and the place where that comes into focus is in marriage. What does it mean for me to be the head? It means that I represent my marriage and family before God. Now, there's responsibility that comes with that, but hear me, it doesn't mean I make every decision in my family. Believe me, I don't. <laughs> I don't even make the good decisions in my family. My wife makes most of those. It means I have a unique accountability before God for every decision that is made. That's what it means, fundamentally, that I appear before God as the representative of my family to pray for them, to present them before God, holy, undefiled, that God holds me accountable to do that, and I'm uniquely answerable to God for that. Now, how does that work out in relation to man, woman, representative, and this idea of authority? Uh, the British scholar Alistair Roberts has helped me a lot thinking through this. When we think about man's authority, it's not an authority in opposition to the woman. Man is called to go and rule and subdue creation. Woman is his helper in that. But it's not like man's primary job is to exercise authority over who? The woman. No, he is actually subduing creation for the benefit of who? The woman. So it's not this opposition where I'm supposed to go subjugate my wife. Actually, what it means is I'm supposed to use my male strength and power to create a space in which her gifts and wisdom can flourish. That's the point of headship. It's an empowering union, not a subjugating union where my power is for her flourishing. That's the image of God. That's that headship, okay? Hang with me. I know it's a lot of theology, but come on. It's 1 Corinthians 11, okay? Woman is the glory of God. What does that mean? Paul is just quoting from Genesis 2 here. Woman is created from man, for man, to be the suitable helper. Does it mean she's inferior to man? No, the idea of glory here, and you see this throughout the Bible, is that woman is the crown of creation. It's the perfecting of creation. God saves the best for last, not just humanity, but woman. And, and God adorns creation with the woman. And throughout the Bible, woman symbolizes this completion, this perfecting, this filling out of humanity. That's why the excellent wife is the crown of her husband, Proverbs says. Think about the, the book of Proverbs and how wisdom is presented. It's a crown. It's a beauty. It's something coming to completion and maturity. And wisdom is personified as what in Proverbs? Not dude wisdom, but lady wisdom. And we kind of know that, right? That there's a, there's a maturity and a wisdom that, that women just have before men, right? Men want to go out, take risks, conquer, and they will destroy the world <laughs> without wisdom, okay? 
Like, I mean, I, I know this because I used to be a middle school pastor, okay? And like, we would go on a trip and we'd be staying next to a frozen lake. Frozen lake. Every 15 feet, there'd be a sign saying, don't go on the lake. You will die. Guess which group of middle schoolers tried to go out on the lake? Don't have to guess. The boys, right? We're going to take risks. We're going to conquer. We're going to subdue. And all the girls are like, you're going to die. <laughs> and when they got back to the shore, we said, you were right. You were going to die, right? There is a crowning wisdom. There is a completion to humanity. And, and so I hope you can see that there's no inferiority implied by that. God takes of the man and perfects and crowns with this completed vision of humanity. And that's why in the Bible, the man is associated with first things and the woman is associated with last things. The man with creation, but the woman with redemption. And that's why in Revelation, when humanity is adorned, we're not as adorned as a dude, we're adorned as what? A bride. Humanity brought to perfect completion is symbolized as the woman. And in that way, all of us are the bride and represented by the woman in the last thing. Does that make sense? So again, equal in significance, but different in symbolism. Does that make sense? So, what does that mean practically? That the way that men and women dress should reflect their maleness, their femaleness, and their commitment to each other. A man who denigrates that dishonors his literal head and his... Figurative head, who is what? Christ. Christ the head, the representative. A woman who denigrates the marital covenant in some way or tries to take the man place denigrates her head, which is the man. Okay? That's Paul's argument here. That's what it means. And that gets at what Paul says, the most confusing line at all here. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Paul, what are you talking about here? Okay? There's about 526 interpretations of what this could mean. Paul is either, literally he says a woman should have authority on her head. Doesn't say symbol. So either she's saying that there should be some symbol of authority, meaning honoring her spouse, or Paul is literally saying that the woman should have authority over her head, which would mean self-control, to comport herself in a way that honors her husband. Either way, it's talking about honoring her marital covenant, her relationship, why angels? Right? That's the question we're all asking. Where do the angels come into this? Here's where they come in. Here's my best guess. You know what makes humanity unique and previews redemption? It's not so much the man. It's the woman. Because throughout Scripture, angels are pictured invariably as male-ish. As masculine, like a band of brothers, as an army, as the sons of God. First Peter says, angels long to look into redemption. What has God accomplished? And what is the picture of redemption that God has sown into humanity? It's the perfected bride. And, and so this is something that angels long to look into because it's a preview of redemption. Again, you can disagree with that. That's fine. Give me a better interpretation, all right? But that, to me, is what Paul is saying because it coheres with this idea of the unique beauty and distinctiveness of each sex. Does that make sense? So that's what's going on. What's the implication here? 
The implication is this, that we should be concerned with the way we publicly honor our spouse. Publicly honor our spouse. Now, we have to translate cultural symbols, right? Because hair doesn't mean now what it meant then, okay? So following this woodenly literally wouldn't make sense because no one would pick up on the significance of that thing, but the significance of publicly honoring your spouse remains the same. Let me give you an example. Like, so for years, I, so I was, I was kind of a portly guy when I got married. I was a little chubby. Then I lost a lot of weight and I kept losing my wedding ring, right? And I didn't have a wedding ring for like, um, like four years, three years. And you might have noticed, I'd go up here and I'd preach, I wouldn't have a ring. And they'd be like, Jeff, you don't have a ring. What's the deal? And people kept asking me about it. I'd be like, calm down. <laughs> I'm still married. Our relationship is fine. Calm down. And my wife would kind of nudge me every once in a while, like, honey, you should buy a wedding ring, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I should, but it's, you know, I'm frugal, honey. Just, you know, <laughs> I want to save money. And she'd be like, no, really, like, buy, buy a wedding ring. What's the point? In our culture, how do spouses publicly show honor to each other? A ring. Now, is there a command to wear a ring? No. But I noticed when I didn't have a ring, women would look at me differently. They'd wonder things. Even taking it off is kind of weird, isn't it? Kind of might make you a little feel uncomfortable. There's a reason for this that shows public honor to my wife. Principles of modesty and deportment. There's a kind of intimacy that should exist among a husband and wife. Physically, what you reveal. Hair was more sexualized in that culture. Other parts of us are more sexualized. Okay, the way you comport yourself. Present yourself to the world. There should be an exclusivity between husband and wife. In public honor, ask yourself this. The way I talk about my steps house and esteem them in public, does that raise people's estimation of them? Does it lower people's estimation of them? If you took everything I said to other people about my spouse, would it give them honor or would it give them dishonor? Okay? Because we cannot glorify God without publicly glorifying God's design for marriage. Does that make sense? Now, two more points. I'll go as quick as I can. I could preach for another two hours on this, okay? But there's a lot to get here. That's, that's the first point. But Paul's point is bigger than this. We can look at through the lens of, of, of marriage. We can also look at this broader lens of just men and women just are different. And when the church gathers, it's not just that marriage should be honored, it's that maleness and femaleness should be honored. And you see this at the end of the passage, right? What does Paul say? Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered, right? And that would mean in a provocative, promiscuous way. Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, my guess at what's going on there is Paul is saying the long hair is the glory of a woman in that culture and how she comports herself wearing it is what honors her. But again, Paul is talking about hair. And he says, is it proper to wear your hair a certain way? Does not nature itself teach something? Later in verse 16, he will talk about custom or practice. Now, what is Paul saying? Is he saying that in the created order that God has commanded that men must have short hair, women must have long hair? Because if that's true, we got to start measuring hair at the door, right? Just like, all right, is your hair long or short? Uh, no, and in fact, the Bible doesn't teach that. In the Old Testament, men could take a Nazarite vow. They'd grow their hair long. 
It wasn't an unmasculine thing to do. In fact, it was a sign of devotion to God. And so when Paul talks about nature itself, he's talking about the way that natural distinctions are embodied in culture. We talk about how gender is a social construct now, right? Gender is a social construct. Sure, cultures construct gender differently. But if you look across the world, basically every culture constructs it the same way. Men dress a certain way, women dress another way to distinguish the sexes. And if you came into a culture where all of that was blurred, you'd think, wow, something went really weird here for that not to happen. So what Paul is saying is not that God has commanded hair lengths for men or women. He's saying in this culture, the custom was that hair had associations. Certain hair had an association with effeminacy. Certain hair had an association with masculinity. Dress yourself in a way that the culture will see you glorifying God's design for men and women. Does that make sense? Now that's going to change based on culture. It's really complicated in a multicultural society. Because <laughs> we have lots of cultures we come from with different standards of dress. Here's what it means though, is that Christians should honor male and female and should not willfully undermine or disguise those things because they're created by God and they are good. And even saying that's wildly controversial in our culture, isn't it? Uh, just to say that our mode of dress should in some way indicate that I'm a man or I'm a woman. Can't get legalistic and yet we want to give honor to the artist who adorns us in different ways. Uh, here is the, here's the kicker for us in how we think about this. Because when we talk about dress and maleness and femaleness, we immediately go to gender. And the way we talk about gender in our culture is basically our perception of ourself. And we have to construct a view of our own gender, right? And we're told to find what your, your gender is. And, and the Bible would start in a different place in telling us what to do with our maleness or our femaleness. The implication would be something like this, that our identity is, not, is a gift we receive from God. It's not some elusive thing within us we discover. What does that mean practically? My maleness, it's just, it's just who God says I am. Period. Now in our culture... There's, there's one of two directions people go. Either gender is this thing that has to be continuously explored and contested in you and it objectively means nothing, but subjectively it means something to you and you've got to find it. Or, or people go in this reactive direction that goes, no, there's only two genders and here's what a real man looks like. And here's a real woman. We've got to nail down all the roles, right? But either way, there's this anxiety about gender, right? That it's really important for me to discover exactly what this thing is. So maybe I contest my embodiedness and try to come up with some other idea of gender, or I say no to react against that. I need to have this kind of performative masculinity, right? I'm going to start working on cars. I'm going to get in a fight occasionally, right? Just be aggressive arbitrarily, right? I'm going to, I don't know, I'm going to grow a beard, even though my beard would look horrible, right? It'd just be patchy, and ah, you know, right? I'm going to, right, take steroids or whatever, and like, you know, just, just be as overtly masculine as I can. It's much simpler than that from a biblical perspective. God creates male. God creates female. Just by being that thing, you embody the dignity and beauty of God. How do you live out that role? Just be faithful to what the Bible says. Just be faithful to channel whatever your masculine or feminine is into obedience to God and you will 
glorify God without having to reduce it to innumerable stereotypes in any direction. Does that make sense? That's freeing. Because ultimately our identity is in God, not in pursuing this thing and discovering exactly how it works. That's not always easy. Sometimes we don't like our bodies. Sometimes we don't feel at home in our bodies. That makes sense. Creation's groaning out for redemption. And yet, identity is something for me to rest in and receive from God, not an elusive thing for me to constantly chase. We won't appreciate any of this, though, until you see just the symbolic beauty of male and female and appreciate, you know what? We are different, but we are interdependent. And so it's silly to talk about superiority or inferiority when it comes to men or women because we are dependent by design on each other. That's why Paul qualifies this way. You might be worried that Paul was talking about superiority or inferiority, which is the better sex. He says, let me just dispel that right now. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so now is man now is now born of woman, and all things are from whom? God. This sounds a lot like what Paul's about to say in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the body of Christ being interdependent and we can't say to each other, I have no need of you. Different parts, equally necessary. Same here for male and female. Here's why this is important. I think in our day, you know, as you just look at marriage rates plummet, birth rates plummet, there's a growing sense among men that a woman is too much hassle and there's no good women. And guess what? women feel the same way. <laughs> Jeez, there's really no good men. Men aren't worth the hassle. Now, not everyone has to be married. Not everyone is called to marriage, but that shouldn't be the reason you don't pursue marriage because the opposite sex is worth too much trouble. You know why? Because they're not the opposite sex. The sexes aren't ulterior. They're complementary. And God designed this thing in such a way that for me to grow into what it needs to be a man, I need the compliment of a woman and vice versa. And so I would just encourage you, particularly if you're younger and you're thinking about marriage, you have to get that clear in your mind. Yes, find a good spouse, but there is a kind of formation that can only happen as you learn to live, love the person who's different than you. What does that mean if you're single? We're in the family of God. We need to build the bonds of family between brothers and sisters as well because women round me out in a way that men cannot. I cannot tell you how much trouble I have saved you from <laughs> through the counsel of the women on our diaconate, on our staff, on our council, in different leadership positions. Their wisdom gives me insight I cannot get from other men. So rather than competition, there should be a profound appreciation and a resting in the fact that, yeah, we're different. That's fine. We can even point out differences. Men and women are very different. I have boys. I have girls. Trust me, they're different. And yet it's not reducible to any gender stereotype. It's a beautiful difference from God, the artist, that we just rest in and ultimately because it's a picture of the gospel itself. That when God creates, he creates heaven and earth. 
He creates land and sea. He creates sun and moon. He creates day and night. He creates male and female, different things, overlapping, interlocking, designed for oneness as a picture of unity in diversity. And you can't have that image unless you have real distinction and find the unity within it. That's where all of this is pointing. That's what should be embodied in our public worship together and in our life as a church because that's what points to the gospel itself and the preeminent man, Jesus, who came for us, his bride, to make all things one. uh, Let's pray as we end today. So, Father, we thank you for your word, even the parts that, that, that seem confusing or perplexing to us, Lord. We trust there's much good there and much good in your artistry, Lord. Um, God, I know this is not an easy message for, for some to hear. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that ultimately we would just rest in your goodness. God, everything you create is good. Our, our created sexed bodies are good. And point to a transcendent truth, Jesus, that, that you came to unite heaven and earth. Jesus, that, that you bridge the divide between us and sin to make us one. This, this beautiful harmony of unity within difference. And I pray we would just live that out in our life together. And I ask it in your name. Amen.